This episode is sponsored by NewCalm, and as many of you know, I only bring sponsors onto this show whose products I truly swear by. Now, we are an overworked and underslept population, especially those of us that wear uniform for a living. And trying to reclaim some of the lost rest and recovery is imperative. Now, the application of this product is as simple as putting on headphones and a sleep mask. As you listen to music on each of the programs, there is neuroacoustic software beneath that is tapping into the actual frequencies of your brain, whether to upregulate your nervous system or downregulate. Now, for most of us that come off shift, we are A, exhausted, and B, do not want to bring what we've had to see and do back home to our loved ones. So one powerful application is using the program PowerNap, a 20-minute session that will not only feel like you've had two hours of sleep, but also downregulate from a hypervigilant state back into the role of mother or father, husband or wife. Now, there are so many other applications and benefits from this software, so I urge you to go and listen to episode 806 with CEO Jim Poole. Then download Nucalm, N-U-C-A-L-M, from your app store and sign up for the seven-day free trial. Not only will you have an understanding of the origin story and the four decades this science has spanned, but also see for yourself the incredible health impact of this life-changing software. And you can find even more information on Nucalm.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show actor, jiu-jitsu practitioner, and volunteer firefighter, Johnny Lee Miller. Now, when I was younger, one of the most powerful films I watched was Train Spotting, and Johnny was one of the stars of that film. So you can understand how humbled I was to hear not only his journey through the world of acting, but also his courageously vulnerable storytelling on his own addiction and recovery. So we discuss a host of topics, from entering the world of drama at a very young age, the highs and lows of fame, the tools he used to overcome his own addiction, the healing power of jiu-jitsu, his call to service in the firefighter uniform, and so much more. One more thing I want to mention... I don't know what happened. I was traveling when I did this recording, but somehow, clearly, I didn't plug in my microphone. So you will hear on my side, the audio quality isn't as good as normal. However, Johnny's is amazing, and that's the one that counts. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment. Go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 900 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Johnny Lee Miller. Enjoy. Well, Johnny, very first thing, I want to say a couple of thank yous. Firstly, thank you, thank you to you 
for even connecting with me on social media, but also thank you to Bobby Burke, who I think was a catalyst to this conversation. An amazing actor, a volunteer firefighter for 22 years now. Obviously, yeah. there's some synergy there because you just entered that profession or that vol volunteer profession yourself. So thank you to Bobby. And I also want to say welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you very much for having me. I shall try and get over my imposter syndrome. But... <laughs> Don't worry, it's on both sides yeah. of the microphone, I promise. <laughs> Actually, Bobby, um, so not only do we have all these similarities, and but he's uh, we you know live in adjoining neighborhoods in Fire Island. So he's a captain in uh, the Ocean Beach Fire Department, and the next town over is my town, Ocean Bay Park. And uh, that's the department I joined. So I knew about him through my, from I'd heard talk of him, his legendary status in my neighborhood. There's lots of um, mutual friends. Well, again, yeah. imposter syndrome, we did a second one and he was like, I don't think I've got anything worth listening to, to say, you know, and I'm like, trust me, <laughs> you're, you're a, an incredible human being. You, you know, parallel to your Hollywood career, you volunteered for 22 years you know, doing what we do, a lot of people listening and get paid to do. So, yeah, I think that imposter syndrome, that humility, I think, you know, more often than not, it's coming from a good place. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, very first question Where on planet Earth are we finding you this afternoon? I'm in New York City, in Brooklyn, in my flat. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, people listening can probably tell that's not where you were born and bred. So let's start at the very beginning of your timeline. Tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, how many siblings. Okay, my I was born in uh, Kingston-upon-Thames, which is a suburb of London in the United Kingdom. And um, I was the, I am one of two children to Alan and, uh, Alan and Anne, and they were both, they both worked in um, television and stage management. So my dad, uh, when I was born, was working at the BBC. He worked there for a very long time, you know, over 20 years um, in uh, production management, like basically the, the television equivalent of a stage manager. And um, <clears throat> my mother, uh, that's where they had met, and she did a, a similar job. But she left when my sister was born. So there's me and my sister, my an older sister. Um, and we grew up sort of very sort of lower middle class in um in uh Nice Park Kingston, which is a, a great place to grow up because you're really close to London if you want to go there on a train real quick. Um, but you've got like Richmond Park nearby, so you've got this sort of it's almost like the countryside, Richmond Park. It's a, it's a beautiful place to uh to grow up. And um, yeah, so my uh, I also have like a bunch of I have two older half sisters from my dad's previous marriage, um, and we saw them a lot growing up as well. Yeah. So before we get to the BBC, because there's some things I want to ask you, because I know you had a quite a unique um, lens as far as a child growing up with parents in that arena that we all revered. Talk to me about the role that your grandfather played, because as a stunt man myself, the absolute pinnacle of you know, films when it comes to a young English boy that dreams of becoming a stuntman is the James Bond series. So tell me about your granddad and what he did. Yeah, my granddad, Bernard Lee, was uh, my, this is my my mum's dad, my maternal grandfather. He, yeah, so he was M in the James Bond movies, first 11. Um, and 
a really great um, larger than life character. I can still sort of hear his voice and, you know, he um, was a lovely man. He died when I was still quite young. I think I was eight, but I remember being very upset. Um, so I never really got any, uh, we never went to any, you know, bond sets or anything like that. And, and, but, but, the, but the one thing that, is he was quite he was a very prolific actor and he and he'd had a very interesting life um served in world war Two in the uh, royal sussex division royal sussex regiment i think that's the right way to say it um was promoted to captain through um because they kept losing all their captains i don't know if he's if he was commissioned i don't i, I don't imagine he was but people got promoted quite a lot of battlefield promotions in, in world war ii so uh battlefield commissions so um after that he just sort of he got into acting and i think he had been a music hall kind of guy before the war actually um was in a company with a man called arthur askey and you might know who that is that might ring it's where he met my grandmother and then um so afterwards he started doing a lot so you know grandpa was in like the third man and and made over a hundred movies and my mum would tell stories about growing up in Hounslow west 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 London and uh coming home and and you know Robert Mitchum sitting there having a drink with 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 my granddad and then insisting on going out and you know playing rounders with my 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 mum and all her school friends and stuff so there was this sort of you know he he lived that like kind of life where he was a very down to earth working class kind of guy my granddad but he mixed in these circles um of like-minded people who kind of liked having fun at work <laughs> um so there was that that sort of you know having that connection to to the movies was was pretty cool growing up but it you know it was um it didn't really um it, it just sort of reinforced that kind of uh you know showbiz sort of vibe in the family like everyone had an opinion on on different things you would watch or how things were done or how things were made particularly having stage manager type parents because they were you know behind the scenes making stuff so it's amazing how many people of his generation were were world war ii veterans so when you watch some of them playing the tough guy role you're like mm, it seems like super believable and then you discover yeah they like, you know, James Cagney or, you know, something that, I got that right. There's a guy from, it's a wonderful life, James. Stewart, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. Thank you. Yeah. He was, you know, all these, these actors that we revered were veterans. And ironically, a lot of the ones that portrayed the kind of heroes that, you know, when we were growing up, John Wayne, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, none of them actually did, you know? So I always look back and, you know, look and say we were kind of raised on a facade two-dimensional version of masculinity which was fun to watch when you were a teenager but then these young boys grow into soldiers and firefighters and police officers and it's actually detrimental this stoic boys don't cry you know rub some dirt in it stuff because these people were portraying it were never actually serving never actually in combat but if you look at the jimmy stewart's and those were the real men. They never portrayed that invincible RoboCop type male lead. 
No, and I and I, and I think that's why they were such great actors as well. They they had an authenticity because um, they didn't because they were that they didn't have to. You know, now you get the kind of the method guys, or you know, if you look at Heat, you know, they had them all running around with guns and learning how to do this to get that. Because you have to, you know, you can't just go off to war in order to be um, convincing <laughs> in a role. Um, but I think you know, Steve, Steve McQueen is another great example of that. Um, he was a Marine and had this, this vulnerability to him. I think, you know, people remember him, oh, the King of Cool and all that. But the wonderful thing about, about his performances, I think is there's a, there's kind of a, um, a lightness of touch and a vulnerability to it, um, which you, you, you know, cause you don't have to over project your masculinity cause it's or, or the masculinity. I shouldn't really say that you don't have to over project your confidence because it's there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think masculinity is the word because that was what we were told that was. Yeah, non non toxic masculinity. I mean, you know, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Now, um, with that being said, so fast forward now, you're you're kind of able to get backstage at the BBC. Sometimes I talk with with you know real kind of fondness about children's television when we were growing up. So Top of the Pops. Um, you know, news, John Craver's News Round, uh, Blue Peter. There was a lot of really positive television for kids. You know, I mean, really, really was. You know, there's people in another country and they're starving. Let's do jumble sales. Let's, you know, do do races and walks and let's raise money and help people. It was really community-based and altruistic. What was it like actually being in the middle of that, being in the BBC and seeing some of these shows firsthand? I mean, I was very young, so you're kind of just starstruck. And they would have, so they would have these, um, they have these little areas called galleries, and it's a gallery up in the the studio roof, um, and it's a, a little windowed viewing area. So it's up high, very high in the top corner of uh, of these studios. So you could go into the galleries, and whichever studio it was had its own gallery. And look at what the work that was being done. I remember being up there. I remember watching, you know, my Blue Peter heroes rehearsing, like Leslie Judd, uh, you know, and and these these people that you just, you know, kind of worshipped. And you're like, there they are, you know, practicing making something out of the fairy liquid bottle. And then I remember watching Top of the Pops rehearsals. Watching because before the days of pop videos. You had the dancers would when when they couldn't get the star to come to the show, they would have dancers instead of playing their their pop video. Then I think the dance the dance what are they called they were called Legs and Co or Pans and Pans People like the the, <laughs> the dance troupe. I remember watching them rehearsing to a Johnny Mathis song. I'm so old. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was it was just, it was like an incredible like you know you felt like. You know, you felt you felt special to be an insider, and then and then you but but then you'd also be you'd be walking down the the corridors of of television center, and uh, you'd go to the outside scene dock bit, and you'd walk past half a Dalek, <laughs> mind blowing, you know. But but you know, you start to you start to sort of you know you get that little thing like yeah yeah I'm I'm you know I I know how it's made I'm I'm on the inside, kind of. Uh, you know, when you're a kid, you like to feel like you're part of the team. <laughs> well, you have this whole legacy, you know, behind you. Were you dreaming of acting when you were young or was there something else you, know, that you were thinking about as well? 
Um, I, I don't know about dreaming about. I think it was. Um, I think it was. Uh, I I I I was quite um, performative. Believe it or not, like as a little kid, I used to make jokes a lot, and I used to like making my school friends laugh, and I did that a lot. And um, I think I was just. I mean, it's an interesting, like looking back, it's always interesting because, um, you know, things were not always as as um, as happy at home as they appeared to be. And um, there's I find it a very interesting question about people who want to be, you know, in in show business. And um, my my son actually is just not interested at all. And he sort of kind of was a little bit and then, but he's not, maybe he secretly is, but I see that as kind of a healthy thing (laughs) because he doesn't need, he's not looking for attention from other places. And um, I find that interesting. I don't know, you know, I'm not saying this, uh, like it's, it's sort of an interesting question to me and I don't have the answers or anything. And I'm not saying that everybody that gets into show business is a desperate um, show off. But there's something to um, needing to be heard. Um, so anyway, um, so I was doing that, but it was like, and then I was, just doing, you know, and I felt you feel connected because your your parents are always talking about the business or this or that. You know, dad's bringing home scripts of Top of the Pops, believe it or not, they had scripts. They had all the lyrics and songs written out on it and then what the presenter would say and blah, blah, blah. Um so you feel like this, but, and, and, you know, you know, that it's a sort of a family tradition. Not only was my grandfather an actor, but his father was a music hall performer. So you kind of feel like, I guess it's entitlement, right? But in the same way that you might be a line of police officers, or you might be a line of doctors from generation to generation, those things happen. Um, but then I remember doing like school plays and like the little class assemblies or whatever, and you do it and I would do a good job and then all your classmates are like that was great man it was so funny it was good and the the minute as a child you get um encouragement and your peers especially like give you a pat on the back then you're like oh maybe maybe this is something um you know maybe that's something fun and then and then you know if you have fun doing something and you're sort of doing it as a hobby and it can turn into a job maybe that's that's it just sort of happens so many people in uniform, men and women in uniform, struggle. And when that discussion is brought up, they're normally told, well, it's what you saw in Fallujah or it's, you know, it was the Grenfell fire. You know, it was, it was something current day when you were in the uniform. As I've become more educated, you know, from listening to so many people, whether it's lived experience or the clinical side, I started realizing that the period of time before we ever put the uniform on is so important to acknowledge and look into if you're going to talk about the holistic human being and their mental health and or addiction journey. When you look back now with this wiser lens that you have at that childhood that you touched, <laughs> that you touched, um, you know, on maybe of not completely idyllic, none of ours is idyllic, let's be honest, but what would you kind of look at as some of the challenges for that young boy then growing up in your family dynamic? Well, what I discovered through um, therapy, (laughs) which just, I can't recommend enough, man. We can get into that later, but that's like, oof. Um, Nothing was talked about. Now, and that might sound a little 
um, soft and just get on with it. But communication is is so huge. And there were some pretty major things going down in my household um, to do with other members of my family, health-wise. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, uh, so I don't really, I can't really go into that. But nothing was ever talked about. And then my parents were not good together. They were not getting on. And there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of tension and a lot of, you know, arguing and bad vibes for, for, for years and years and years and years. And it affected me and my sister very, very poorly. Um, what? Yeah. What, what? So, you know, it can't help but have an effect on how you interpret the rest of the world. Right. And, and how you carry on through and uh, you know personally I, did, I ended up quite quite you know emotionally uh stunted because of that um you know really not developing in the ways that I think help now I kind of know that you you know are, are more healthy to do so it's very important to me with my with my son to um communication is top of the list um yeah yeah well I mean I think it's it's I could probably count on a couple of hands a number of people that have come on the show that haven't had elements that were, you know, basically detrimental in their earlier years that they probably had to deal with later on. You know, this is a human experience. And so whether it's acting or musicians or police officers or soldiers or firefighters, you know, this is this is the thing, is that when you look back now, a lot of people were going through the same kind of things. And, you know, you look at the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, security, and some of these other things. If a child doesn't feel, like you said, loved, communicated with, you know, secure, whether it's around addiction, whether it's adoption or, you know, this, the middle child that feels unloved, whatever it is, the traumas are all different, but the, the perception is the yeah. same. And if it's left unaddressed, it might be, you know, leaving a military unit or it might be becoming a celebrity. It might be a number of things that kind of finally are the straw that broke the camel's back. And I think this... It's so yeah. important for us now, better late than never, to have these conversations to help other people of our age, but also to let, as you said, the generation beneath us, and my son is the same, I talk to him about everything so that hopefully they can they can learn from our mistakes and realize that, as I touched on earlier, a man is not this two-dimensional robot. A man is strong when he needs to be and kind and compassionate and vulnerable at other times too. Yeah, I was a very uh, timid. Um, um, I was I, I was I was friendly and I was I was out there and I had, I had a really good time at, at um, junior school uh, as a kid. But I was very very timid and and I, and, I, and especially as a teenager, then became very uh, very confused and I was not like a like a tough like a strong kid. <laughs> I was very like overly sensitive and and very you know. Um, and I think I kind of, I kind of tried to compensate with that slowly throughout my life. You know, I tried looked at different martial arts, and I tried to become like a tough person, and I was, you know, I tried to do that and manufacture it. But when it's sort of built on on top of a, a weak foundation, as you say, it's there's, you know, you can't really you can deal with those things that come your way, the different lifestyle choices that you make, trying to be a big boy. You can deal with that to a certain extent, but it's going to come crashing down at some point without that foundation. Absolutely. Does that make sense? No, it does completely. Yeah. It's funny because I started martial arts for the same reason. I was very, very meek. Um, and uh, 
you know, even when I was winning titles and stuff, I still, that imposter syndrome was still there. Like, you know, on the outside, I probably looked like I was, you know, a tough guy, quote unquote, to the point where even in my late teens, some of the <laughs> friends and ex-boyfriend, one of the girls I was dating that used to give me shit all the time stopped because I was in the paper and won this tournament. And I'm like, I'm the same pussy than I was <laughs> the day before, you know, but even now at 50, almost 50 doing Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu and we'll get into you know the commonalities there but i still feel like that i still feel like basically everyone in the world can kick my ass so it's it's funny how that kind of you know that that sense of meekness when you're when you're little carries over i just made a comment rolling with something the other day i'm like yeah you know us small guys and he was like small and i realized i'm six foot and 175 that's not small but in my mind i'm still that little meek tiny kid and you just yeah. You, know, you don't grow out of it. You know, you try and project out of it and you try and build and, and you know, be strong. And well, I, think it's, I, think, I think I think to, to get you when you can go full circle when you can get back to it, because I then spent the you know, I spent the last 10 years trying to get back to that kid because <laughs> um, you got too far away from it for all the wrong reasons. And, and you know, that, that's something that I really enjoy, actually, is, you know, because now I can say, you know, no, that's not for me or. You know, I, I don't really enjoy being around a lot of people and, you know, and, and it's okay. You don't have to, but, uh, but, but trying to get, I, I do actually feel like a, like a little kid again, which is kind of good, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I actually can relate to that because I'm becoming more playful again. When you're a first responder yeah. for years and years and years, seeing all the horrible stuff, you, sure. you lose that childishness now that we can be absolute child you know children in the firehouse sometimes with the pranks and stuff but that ability just to find joy find joy in all the little things it it kind of gets stunted a little bit you know we, we have compassion um fatigue and just burnout and all these things that really you know destroy you as an adult but that that kind of uh innocence and wonder and playfulness that we have as children i can absolutely relate because five years out of this profession i'm finding myself starting to touch base with that again good that's cool so we're talking of sports when you were school age before we get to your your acting journey what were you playing back then rugby loved it because it was a chance to be violent <laughs> i you know i wasn't really like oh i got it in my head that i want to be violent but i really enjoyed contact sports and i was you know i wasn't um a star player but I I uh, I was on the B team, and then um, the fullback got injured, and I got a shot in the on the first team and uh, and secured a place because I had a good game. But I just loved the con. I loved um, you know I, I was good in contact. I was a good tackler, and I was I was you know I just I just I loved that game, and I loved. The, the organization, I love the discipline of it, you know, and if you want to get a group of kids to work together, you know, put them in a rugby team and teach them rugby. It's unbelievable, you know, and I, I absolutely loved it. So I played that from, you know, I left school at 16, to be honest with you, so, but every year I was there, I was playing rugby. Uh, that was my, that was my jam. They didn't, they, so my school was, uh, was a, a state grammar. Oh my God, cat attack. <laughs> <laughs> Um, 
my school was a state grammar so we still had the 11 plus in kinks and i think they, they still do which is where you like you know you take like some basic iq test when you're 11 years old and then they split all the kids up based on that not a great system because a lot of 11 year olds aren't developed it's just a weird age to do that to, to people but anyway got lucky and um but then you send you to this school which is based on um um the public school system a British public school, American private, words are switched. Um, but it's free. So uh, um, so they kind of, so they didn't play, long-winded way, they didn't play football, soccer, they played rugby because they were trying to be posh. So we would, all the teams, so we had this school, the mix of all these kids where some of them are from uh, wealthy backgrounds and some of them are penniless um, and we're all in together and there's it's boys only and uh, no no girls absolute nightmare you know what i mean like just vibe wise horrible because just there's just too much tension um so it was really sort of Dickensian in in that respect the school but they had you know good sports programs met some re- there were some great teachers there um but yeah the, i was i was terrible at cricket um which is the summer sport, but uh, but yeah, rugby was my thing. We we uh, we played a lot. Cricket used to bore the hell out of me. I got to be honest. I'd always end up because I had a decent throw when I was younger, and so they put me you know outfield, and I'd just be there like, oh for God's sake! It was like lifeguarding in a in a public pool, just waiting for someone to drown so you can do something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know you can't grab a hold of anyone and knock seven bells out of them. No, exactly. So, that's a drawback, as far as I was concerned. Um, I had a player on my on, uh, on on my in my year, Robert Henderson, and he went on to play for Ireland and uh, the British and Irish Lions. Oh wow! Yeah, he was uh, centre. He played inside centre, I think. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I, I heard you yeah. on the. Uh... He, smoked, he smoked like twenty twenty Bensons a day or whatever at that time. Like he was a freak athlete. He's held the had like the school eight hundred meter record or something like that. And he was like ten Bensons. I wonder what he's doing now. I'm assuming he gave up to play at that level. So Yeah, no, yeah. He played he went to that level. Played for Munster, I think, as well for 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 a while. A big, big club in Ireland. Um so yeah. Good old Rob Hendo. <laughs> So I heard you on the Distraction Pieces podcast, which as we were discussing before we hit record, which I think was the only one that you did, and that was six years ago. So uh, again, honored that you uh, you came on here. So thank you. But um, I heard you talking, you know, the kind of the on-ramp to your acting. So to preface it, I did a school musical when I was 10, I think it was. And it was funny. I had a kind of very posh junior school and then, you know, real kind of um, spit and sawdust senior school. So I got, you know, two sides of the coin. It was really, it was excellent. But um, so we're in the school play. It was Trial by Jury by Gilbert and Sullivan. It was like an opera supposed to be. And I forgot the lines and cried in on, in front of the whole school on stage. Oh my God. So I am not confident. And even That's I went to drama school there. years later and I am the worst actor I know. I got good at stunts. So it it it, it led me into a different profession in, in the performing world that I was good at. But when it came to acting, terrible, terrible. So you have an interesting on-ramp as far as not going to drama school. So walk me through how you actually found yourself on stage and then how that ramped up to professional acting. Um, so uh, 
re, you re, rewind from uh, from secondary school to uh, I was when I was like seven or eight. Um, my mom heard about there was this woman uh, a few streets away who had a child agency, right? And I was because I, I was doing like this, these little bits of acting at school and being performative and blah blah blah, little show off. And and she heard about this agent, so we went to meet her and she took me on and sent me on a bunch of auditions. And I got, um, I got a couple of jobs when I was like eight years old. So I was like, you know, speaking as well. Like uh, I was in um, a couple of, you know, dramas, Thames television and, 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 and it was amazing. Like you go with your mom, you go to these rehearsal rooms and it's professional and do a few lines here, here and there. And, and it was, it was brilliant. Um, but I got my equity card that way um in you know 1980 i had an equity card at like eight years old so i was kind of i kind of felt like but then after doing like two or three jobs we went i wasn't interested in in going to drama school my parents weren't interested in sending me to drama school you had to do real school and so that kind of that went away and we stopped doing that um but we had this card for like later in life you know which was amazing um and then when i was at secondary school uh, we had this amazing uh, drama teacher called Frank Waitley. And I didn't study drama at school. I didn't do drama. So he wasn't my drama teacher, but he would do the school plays with us. So I, that's how I knew him. Um, and we would do, we did a play one year in conjunction with this theatre company called the National Youth Music Theatre, a great organisation. And so we put on this school play and it was, it was really amazing. And that it was it was developed like we workshopped it. It was about um, it was about the beginning of ragged schools in 19th century London when Lord Shaftesbury like started getting these kids together and give them jobs as boot blacks, shining shoes and trying to give uh, poor children an education. Uh, <clears throat> we put this play on and workshopped it and developed it. So it was a very organic sort of thing. And then that theatre company then cast a wider net for auditions and we took that play onto other other places around Southern England and then to the Edinburgh Festival. Um, and that's how I joined that theatre company. And so it was an amateur theatre company, um, but we would tour, we would go to places only during school holidays, like, you know, um, spring break and the summer holidays and you'd meet kids from all over the UK would come together and rehearse and then take the play to, we went to, you know, Exeter Festival, the Edinburgh Festival. We went to Norway to a, to a to Bergen uh, Theatre Festival. We went to Greece. Uh, and I did that for like the next four years. Um, and it was an amazing education because, you know, you're 12, 13, 14 years old and you're performing to paying audiences um, around Europe. It was unbelievable. Um, to, to a fairly high standard and it was usually music theater but it was kind of it was kind of theater with music so it wasn't like we were doing straight musicals usually all the, uh, and then singing is not my thing I'm not I'm not a singer I'm not very you know I can I can you know carry a tune but I'm not a trained singer um but you know some of the kids coming out of that have gone on to really good things and uh I mean there's some actors like I mean Jude Law I met I met him there and we became, you know, very close friends and have been ever since. Um, 
you know, Sally Hawkins, who's been, you know, nominated for an Oscar and people like that. Matt Lucas um, was in that company. I think Eddie Redmayne as well has won an Oscar. Well, you know, so it has good, a good pedigree coming out of that. Jamie Bell, I think, as well. Um, so that was a really good. So ha- having done that, I was kind of decided that I didn't really need a full. <laughs> I'm like, why am I going to then? I hated school, hated it. Because I had this amazing life in the summer where I was doing doing actual stuff, you know what I mean? And so uh, as soon as I could, I left school and, um, you know, got a regular job, um, you know, moving deliveries around and could go to auditions because I had this card from when I was eight years old, the secretary card. So I was like, why am I going to go to another institution where I'll just stare out the window all the time? And I've got this card. Why don't I get, I've got, I've got a bunch of experience in the theater. Why don't I go and try and get a head start on all my peers, you know? Uh, and that's what I did. Uh, it took me a couple of years of doing um, different jobs for money, like, you know, tearing to being an usher at a theater or um, being the storeman at the hard rock cafe. <laughs> And in a couple of years' time, I managed to start getting enough work where I didn't have to do those jobs anymore. I could just do acting and make a living on it. So did you have an agent? Because when I came out of drama school, no equity card. And for people listening, that's the version of SAG back in the UK. Um, I was stuck in this this vicious circle. I did this monologue from a, a play called Welcome Home by Tony Marchant. And it was the this Falklands veteran who was... Well, worked with Tony. Oh, have you? Amazing. Amazing. I love yeah. that. Well, I'm actually, it's funny, I'm writing a second book and I'm, there's an element of that in this one kind of era that I'm touching on and it's going to be a Falklands era. Um, but I, that resonated, you know, even, even today, but it was, uh, this, uh, this character basically has PTSD and he's recalling what happened on Bocker Hill. Um, and so I did this monologue and it, I was very different than my other drama school friends. Cause I was, a uh, you know, an athlete and everything. And they were a little bit more, thespian-esque and i mean that with the kindest term yeah. so i was just different so there so there's a couple of agents that were like oh actually we like you and one was william morris and i'm like oh wow this is going well wow. but i was told but i don't the person that was watching wouldn't have been the department that i would have been the right fit for he said i'll tell you my colleagues so let me know when you get some work and i was all excited then i got back to london started looking for work and i was like oh you can't get work without an agent and you can't get agent without work wow. so this was around yeah, uh, 99, I think is when I graduated. So, um, and bearing in mind, I'm also not a good actor or photogenic. So I'll take factor those in as well. But so I ended up in this vicious circle and, and never got anywhere. So ironically, I even put my name in for Band of Brothers and I'll talk about that in a little bit, but I ended up working with Dale Dye, but for a completely different reason. But back to the question, sorry, I just went off on a monologue. So, so what about you with the agent side? Well, so this this kid agency that I that I'd been uh, that the, the lady um, it changed hands. There was a woman called Jean Darnell, um, and she um, she she kept me on for all those years. I wasn't doing any work. I was still on the books from you know from I was just doing the the, the amateur theatre from twelve to like eighteen. She kept me on the books and. Um, and then agreed to show she didn't usually uh, take people over the age of 18, but um, I'd been there so long and she decided to, she said she'd, she'd represent me for a while um, when, you know, I was 18, 19 
And then, uh, so she represented me for a while and, and I got, until I could, I got a job at, uh, doing a, I was in a play at the Bush theater and then another agent came to see that. So I, I always had representation, which is, you know, the luck of the gods, man. You know, I, I, I just, yeah, it was just that, I guess it was that move when I was like 18, when I was like eight years old, like go to see somebody. And then I got a foot in the door at this agency and they agreed to, um, to represent me as a young adult until, uh, it was time for me to get um, an adults agent, <laughs> and I got and, and I got lucky because I did a play called Beautiful Thing at the Bush Theatre. Um, I think it's just just had a revival actually, um, amazing play, and and um, another agent came to see that and was like, "Yeah, uh, Pippa Markham." She came and 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 she said, uh, "I'll represent you." So I just you know fell into that. Now. When I think of, you know, when I first came across you, it's got to be Trainspotting. I remember seeing Hackers later, but Trainspotting was the first one. I don't want to make the assumption, though, that was the big break. So kind of walk me through, you know, after a couple of years of doing regular jobs, you're able to be full time to when you got the uh, the audition for Trainspotting and or Hackers. Yeah. So, yeah, OK, so it's like, I mean, God, honestly, I bore myself. <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> Well, again, bear Please. in mind, you haven't, if this is the second part, you're killing me here. You're killing me. Yeah. So, like, you know, you, when you're a young actor in the in Britain, like, you do all the all the standard things, like you're doing casual an episode of Casualty. You know, you're. And I was like, you know, one of the nasty kids that gets somebody injured that then ends up in the Casualty story. And then you did the Bill. You remember the Bill? So it was like a, a cop. Even show. though those shows are still really good, London's Burning, the Bill, Casualty. I would say. We need more shows like that. Less Hollywood, more realism. So I, I was in the bill twice as two different people, <laughs> um, <laughs> two different miscreants. You had to wait. You had to wait. The rule was you had to wait 18 months. If you were in the bill, like, you know, as a snot nosed kid making trouble, then you, and then you had to wait 18 months before you could be in it again as another snot nosed kid making trouble. Um, so Is that how dumb we British people are that after a year and a half, we forget yeah. everything? You're not going to remember that that specky kid from Kingston. <laughs> it's going to fade from your memory. You know, they're all like, oh, you know, you know, you can do it again. You weren't that memorable. We'll, we'll give you. You can do twelve months. <laughs> um, so you do like a bunch of jobs like that, and then I did I actually did a um, I did a a, dra- a couple of uh, really interesting dramas that they they, they had these um, the BBC used to be so good they had these programs and they they had a man there called michael waring who my mum ended up working for actually um and he ran the drama there and it, they were they were very edgy and they had these screen one and screen two um series like one for bbc one and bbc two and they would make these these standalone movies and and three-part dramas that that were of such great quality and great writing and that's where people like tony march and so i did this three-part drama called goodbye cool world that tony had written about um about a woman who gets motor neuron syndrome and gradually loses all her faculties and the ability to move and speak and and it's about and it was really about her family dealing with that and her husband dealing with it and trying to what the challenges of fundraising and 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 being too distracted by fundraising and not caring enough about her and and you know all those interesting questions and I was their 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 son so anyway sorry tangent um doing all kind of jobs like that and then 
actually um the first big movie was was um hackers that came along and, and I, it was like the first time some that you know i went for an audition and then they like flew me to new york to like read with with actors you know for the other roles and and it was extraordinary experience um and i guess i was living uh i was living in a flat in in kentish town um with jude and you know this this dingy little flat above a a, a chinese takeaway on the on the fortress road in kentish town and uh i was like i'm off to america <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you later and uh that so that was the kind of the first sort of the biggest biggest job I'd ever got and 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 even though it came out after train spotting we made it first and then so when when you when you start getting jobs it's like you get um you get known throughout those casting circles I guess um even if the public doesn't know who you are the sort of the industry starts to you know um so when I made that and then, um, you know, uh, it was, I think it was pretty soon after that. I was, I was, um, I was, I had, I had fallen in love with, with Angelina. Right. And I was chasing her around the globe, <laughs> um, with what money I had, I spent it. I went to visit, she was making a film after we, after we shot hackers, she was making a film in, in Portland, Oregon. So I flew over there to bug her and, 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 you know, be that kind of, you know, you know, that 20 year old that doesn't know any better. You know, what about me? <laughs> uh, and I'd flew over there and I was visiting with her and, and, and you, and I was friends with, um, with you and McGregor a little bit socially. He had, he had bumped into Jude at a, an audition I don't think it ever came to fruition, but it was they they were both auditioning to be in this like this movie about a rock band or something. And the director had told given them 20 quid and told them to go to the pub and get drunk. <laughs> Which you, don't, you didn't want to do to those two at that time. <laughs> but they uh they pulled up their socks and they went to the pub and and got drunk and um and then they became very good friends. So I knew you in a bit socially. Um and he recommended me, I think, to uh, to Gail. I think it was casting, train spotting, and Danny Boyle. You and had done a movie with Danny before, Shallow Grave, right? And uh, and uh, so my name got thrown in the pot for whatever reason. Uh, thank you, you and and I was uh, on a, I was just about to get on a plane back from Portland. And uh, you know, I'd been misbehaving all, all weekend over there and then flew back went to a phone box to get the address of or find out what was going on with this train spotting audition and i think i went from the airport hung around lunt soho a bit and then went straight to the audition so i didn't even go home and change i mean back in those i mean when you're younger you can do things like that you know um well for that role it probably didn't matter if you weren't suited and booted anyway no but you know, we like to think about like preparation now and like <laughs> nailing the audition and all that. But I must have been just so arrogant, <laughs> you know, or or I, I don't know. Like I can't even I can't even imagine what what I was thinking or not thinking. You know, um, 
but I really liked, you know, I really I thought the material was was great, and I and I and I and I managed to throw in a half decent Sean Connery impersonation in that in that audition, and um and and I guess that job like it was just another job, like no one knew it was going to be like a big success. It was just another job, but it was super interesting. And like you know, once you meet Danny, he's like one of the nicest people. Danny Boyle, like one of the nicest men out there. And just a, a a really um just not condescending. He hasn't got a condescending bone in his body. He's just a he just knows how to work with people, how to get the best out of them. And he he's just all about uh the truth of the subject, right? And it was just such an am- incredible experience of you know, the right way to rehearse, the right way to prepare, the right way to research. Um, you know, meeting people all left, right, and center to do with this, that, you know former drug addicts, you know, guys in, in rehab, um, watching movies to do with little bits and all getting together and rehearsing. And, and it was just a, that kind of experience. Now, the book had been quite successful. So we knew there was going to be a bit of a tension around it. But, you know, um, when you're making, um, when you're making like a TV show or a movie or whatever, you do get a vibe if it's going well, like, you know, well, this feels good because these guys are all really good and that set looks really cool. And this this director of photography, he seems to like really know what he's doing and the design is incredible. So you kind of think, well, you know, this, this is, might not suck, you know. Um, but then, you know, it, it went to like it was like the number one movie in the UK and, and, and we were like, wow. Um, and then all these doors open for you. And if you're anything like me, you ignore them all and run away to America and uh, and misbehave. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I want to get to that portion, but before we do, when I think back, it's been a while since I watched Train Spotting, but I I absolutely went and saw it in the film and it's going to be in in the cinema. And thinking about it now and I remember how it made me feel reminds me of a conversation I just had with Suzanne Stein, who's a street photographer. Um, And there's a kind of spectrum of street photography from beautiful and kind of cinematic all the way through to very raw. And she's on the raw side. And she made a comment that a lot of her work and and, and sadly, a lot of the people that she's taking pictures of at the moment, they're on Trank, which is the latest drug that everyone's battling with. You've got the fentanyl, but you've also got this Trank and the Trank wounds literally start rotting. So these people seem like zombies, not only from their mental state, but their flesh is literally coming off them. What is that, like tranquilizers? Yeah, it's literally a horse tranquilizer. I forget the the name of the tranquilizer, but yeah, they're combining it, which I think is A, supposed to prolong the high from the fentanyl, and then B, you know, as a paramedic, like if we come and give um, Narcan, it's not going to affect the trank. So it's very dangerous as well. Um, But she made the comment that a lot of the media won't, take her work but they will show these graphic images from ukraine and gaza and when i think of train spotting it's that same discomfort we're not showing you know compton in the 80s with the crack epidemic or new york we're showing glasgow here in the uk so i it's it's one of those films i almost feel that we need again that we need to revisit it because this is what's happening on our you know, on our soil in America, in Australia, in England, or excuse me, in the UK. Um, and yet 
even with the human trafficking conversation, there was that film that came out not too long ago and it was all heroic, but it was all overseas. Whereas actually most of the trafficking is happening domestically and our children are being groomed through social media and all these kind of things. So what I loved about train spotting is it held that right in front of your face and said, this is happening here. Whether you like it or not, you're going to have to watch this. Yeah. And also, you know, that's why it resonates with people so much because, you know, it's, you can make stories about stuff more authentically about things that are closer to you and closer to home. Um, and you have a group of people doing that. We tell our sort of tell our local story, if you like, and I'm talking nationally, but local, that's kind of, you know, uh, and, and I think that's why it, um, people can identify with pretty much everything in that film, even though it's kind of at a heightened level of reality. Um, and it got some criticism for, you know, glamorizing or being, but, but I don't, I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, it's intentionally confrontational like that. Um, and it's trying to, to give you the perspective of those guys and in their eyes, they're, you know, I mean, Danny had always said if he was making a completely realistic version of that world, it would, you know, be unwatchable. Um, and then uh, I think someone asked him once, what do you think the average junkie is think- thinks about this? And he said, uh, the average junkie is thinking, where the fuck am I going to get my next hit from? You know, they don't give a fucking shit about some stupid movie. <laughs> so, you know. Um, it was, it was, it was an interesting, um, but I, yeah, I, I, I agree with you that, you know, like I, I'm, I'm all about those finding a new way to speak to whatever generation it is. And that's always the, the, the magic in the bottle that everyone's looking for, um, is how to identify, how to connect with an audience. Cause if you, if you make I've always believed that if you make a good product in that, I say the word product, but essentially that's what it is, right? Like if you make something good, if you build it, they will come. I, I honestly believe that. And and if, you know, it, it might not happen immediately. It might not happen because of all the different platforms there are now and the different ways people can access different content. It might not get to its audience as quickly, but uh, a good films hang around and good stories hang around, I think. Absolutely. Well, when I think of a comparable film, and now I've got a 16-year-old son, um, another one that really grabbed me by the throat was Kids. And it made you think about, you know, kids, drugs, alcohol, you know, um, sex, all these things. And as a parent, it really was, you know, it was it was horrifying as a person who was a little bit older than the kids in the movie. But then now as, as a parent of a 16 and 22-year-old, you know, it makes you think again, not only the vulnerability of your son, but also to make sure that your son doesn't become you know, a nuisance, a pest, a predator, whatever it is. Yeah. You make this very raw, powerful film. Were there any stories that came out of it as far as increasing the awareness of the addiction crisis in the UK at that time, or even people that were steered away addiction because of the film? Not that I know. And at the time I wasn't, I wouldn't have been responsive to those kind of discussions. And, you know, you couldn't really have them. I mean, there wasn't really an internet, so you weren't getting feedback like that. Um, I mean, you know, and I, uh, 
I, I, my, my head was up my ass anyway, to be honest with you. And I, you know, as a young guy that, that wasn't really, um, that was trying, probably trying to avoid those conversations, <laughs> you know? Um, well, you talk, you talked about kind of, you know, this next chapter. So you are, you know, pursuing the art of acting up to this point and acting and celebrity are two different things. You know, I think that's why I've got so much admiration for Gary Oldman, for example, such an incredible actor. You never see him on any, you know, tabloid or anything at all. But you're a young man. You get thrust into the the limelight now. You know, you talked about some of the challenges earlier in your life. So what did that kind of pendulum swing look like for you? Um. So, I mean, the big the the big thing is like it wasn't like you're like a huge. It's not you're not like Tom Cruise overnight. You know what I mean? Like and and if you if you're like mid level, like like that, like it kind of made us lower to mid levels. You you have everyone's like okay, you should go okay. You I went to LA to to live with Angie, right? And then we we ended up getting married, and while I was there, it was like, I got hooked up with an American agent. And then you're like, you know, going to all those auditions. And I was just messing up auditions or in LA, that's what I was doing. And, you know, I, I ended up working a bit over there a couple of times, like my memory's a bit, a bit hazy. Um, but really that's sort of, I, I started using drugs a lot, you know, and, and, and I, and I was avoiding, I didn't, I didn't go to like the Cannes film festival where train spotting had its big premiere. I mean, I didn't go, I was too busy, you know, <laughs> doing nothing. And um, so you can avoid that pendulum swing if you're, if you want to, it's a, it's a, it's a big misnomer. I think that I, I think it's my experience as well even you know even even big stars to a certain degree you can avoid it if you want to you can blend into the crowd it's it's how you carry yourself and how down to earth you are really and and you can also on the other hand play up to it and become quite you know you know you can behave like royalty or 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 isolate yourself or get isolated because you because of the fear of of being you know recognized or whatever but if it, if you're just like whatever man they kind of there are ways to avoid it i think i mean and i don't speak from experience of being super famous because i never have been and i'm not and it's it's not something i would wish for ever but um yeah i just ignored it i i kind of and i, I squandered a lot of opportunities and i don't have any regrets about anything to be honest with you because although i wouldn't be sitting here and i wouldn't have this you know great kid you know might i wouldn't you know it's just nothing needs to change you know what i mean but um at that time i was just um i got preoccupied you know with myself how old is your son now 15 just turned 15 might be home, from, be home from school in a minute, but I told him to be quiet when he comes in. <laughs> <laughs> and that was with Angelina Jolie? No, no, uh, no. We we were married for a couple of years and um, we separated in 97. Um, no, uh, Buster's mom is uh, a lady called Michelle and, and I met her uh, years later. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. my math's off then really i just want to make sure um so two things with that firstly like you said you're you're now you know 
enjoying your time in LA. And I, and by the way, chasing her, I, I went to drama school because I chased a girl. She was in costume and design in Welsh College of Music and Drama, and I just got myself in because I wanted to be by her. That's why I was such a bad actor. <laughs> We've all done it. Yeah. And then I moved to America after marrying an American girl. And, uh, you know, we'll get into that in a second. But you yourself, Trainspot and Gets You to a certain point, but Angelina obviously had a, a pretty significant level of uh, excuse me, celebrity. We see the dark side of the paparazzi, you know, sticking their, their noses in. For, I mean, the worst case to me is, you know, when they're hounding people's children. Um, did you experience the dark side of that when you were in that marriage? No, no, because she was just starting out. I mean, she was nineteen, twenty, and and I, I, she we'd done Hackers, and then that was you know that was it, and it it wasn't a successful film at that time. It did all right, but it wasn't you know. Later years, it sort of got sort of culty status because of its sort of ridiculousness. Um, but at the time, it wasn't a big deal. Um, but but she, she she was like on this starting out kind of journey, and I think it was it became a, quite apparent. Like I kind of knew she was going to be big, you know, because she was very very good at her job and really beautiful. <laughs> so that's good. <laughs> Got some things going for you. Though. She's a really really good actor. Like and people people tend to forget that. Um. So. So, yeah, I was just like, there was none of that going on, man, no. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time, like, you know, locked in a room anyway. <laughs> now, did she shoot Gia when you were together then? Have I got that? Uh, yeah, line? yeah, yeah. That yeah. was a brilliant song. Yeah. And then she started winning, like, she won, like, three Golden Globes or whatever on the bounce or something. And it was, you know, you were like, oh, she was off to the races, man. Yeah. So I was married, um, you know, ended up discovering that when I was at the fire station, someone else was in my house with her. Um, so that marriage ended. But what was really jarring, and I did have a little boy at the time. Um, so he Sorry, was only no, no, it's 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 a good thing because I can storytell now and hopefully people can relate to it. But um, he was three when when you know it fell apart. But what was jarring is I realized because I'd moved to the US from the UK. I didn't really have anyone around me. I didn't have family. A lot of my friends were in California, ironically, when I'd worked prior to moving back to the East Coast. So when you went through that, when that first marriage ended, did you find yourself in any kind of isolation when, you know, knowing that you'd left a lot of people back on the uh, other side of the Atlantic? Uh, yeah, but I got on a plane and went home and I went oh, back okay. to the UK and I lived in the UK for the next seven or eight years. I went, I went back. Um, cause I was like, this is not, there's nothing going on here. And I, and I, and I'd gotten some bad habits and, 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 uh, I, I don't know, like lots of stories crisscross here. Um, but I, I, uh, I, I went back with, you know, my tail between my legs and, 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 you know, it was one of those things where, you know, she's a really cool lady and, and, um, and, and we're really good friends now and, um, so it wasn't uh it was a sort of it was the like it was, it was an amicable split and there was no responsibilities there was no kid there was no you know and everything was it was cool um but yeah and i do identify with what you're saying a lot because later because when um me and michelle um who was my second wife 
we met in LA. I went back to LA. I, I could stomach it. I stomached England for about another seven years. And I was like, work wasn't going the way I wanted it to. Wasn't getting the jobs I wanted. Um, and I blamed it all on, you know, the business over there. It wasn't, it wasn't to do with me. Right. And then I went to LA and started looking for work again and immediately found work. And I was like, Americans are awesome. Um, and then I met, uh, I met Michelle and two years later we have, you know, we have a kid, um, but she's from New Jersey. And so with that, we're out in LA and she's from New Jersey and she has a, she had a challenging upbringing and her, her siblings are, uh, she had no dad in the picture and her siblings are both developmentally disabled. So, uh, and, and her mom is kind of overloaded and, uh, so neither of us had anybody, uh, any any relatives to ever like watch the kids. So every time you want to do stuff like go out or have a date night, those kind of things tend to take a back seat because you've got to find a babysitter. There's always there's never family to, to take the cushion, and I, and I think that's a, a, a real challenge um, for people um, when you both sort of come from a long way away and you're both transplants and, 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 and you're dealing with, uh, with raising a little one that there, that's a major challenge. Um, and, and that's even, we came back to New York, uh, even being closer to, I mean, it was still, still the case here for us. We're, we're not together anymore, but, um, it was uh, a challenge and a challenge when, when we separated as well, you know, a huge challenge because it's just you, man. <laughs> it is indeed it's funny my uh my little boy i had a babysitter as a neighbor's uh, daughter from across the street and she she's an amazing young girl she was i mean just crushing it in high school and then ended up entering the military i think she went into the, the anesthesia program or something but she would you know study while she watched my son if i went out um i was dating because i was <laughs> trying to <laughs> trying to unf my my life after the divorce um but uh her name was my asia and i remember this little you know three, four-year-old kid saying, all right, I'm, we're going to have, uh, my Asia's going to come. He'd go, it's not my, it's not your Asia, it's my Asia. So I, I always remember that. This is the sweet, yeah. sweet young girl that would babysit. Um, when you, you know, as you said, you came out of that first relationship. If if my timeline is right in my head, that's around the time that um, Band of Brothers was casting. Like I said, I threw my name in the hat. And, and mm-hmm. ironically, years later, Dale Dye ran a, a boot camp for, a stunt show that I was in in Japan and he's actually uh, he's been on the show he's coming on again to talk about the Masters of Air in a few weeks which is just about to come in on Apple yes um, but that was a big big production in in British you know drama around 99 ish so were you offered any of the roles in that that production no <laughs> but, I, <laughs> but I uh I love Band of Brothers and I I've 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 seen the whole thing through about three or four times absolutely loved that show and um everything about it just everything music production acting just just thought it was an absolutely great piece of work but no i don't i don't think so it's like i say it's like um, you know um it's very hard for me to remember all those things and all the things that i dismissed as kind of not not right for me or don't want to do that and not you know and like thinking of yourself you try, all the time you want to be Gary Oldman all the time you want to be Al Pacino Robert De Niro you know what I mean and um so you're 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 saying no to a lot of stuff 
Um, but I don't remember being offered Band of Brothers, no. So you talked about, you know, dabbling in drugs, you know, around the, the earlier time. You have a divorce, you go home for seven years, you come back to L.A., Walk me through, like, where was the lowest place that you found yourself? Because you you talked about your life kind of mirroring Bobby's, and Bobby has a very powerful kind of addiction slash recovery story. So what was your low, and then what was it that you were able to kind of find to claw your way out of that? Gosh, I mean, I had, an, I had a number of lows, um, and, 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 and that was kind of uh, – I kept getting away with it or being okay enough, and – to think I was okay. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I was, you know, taking very hard drugs. I, I, you know, I was addicted to heroin for a couple of years. And when I, when I moved back to, to uh, the UK, I just dropped it. I associated it with somewhere else and I was able to just drop it. Now I substituted it with a, you know, a whole host of other things, but but um, I, but what it did was, it convinced me, or, or you know, foolishly convinced me that I didn't have a substance abuse problem because I was able to do that. And who can do that? And if you have a, you know, if you're able to conquer that beast, then you know you're good. So, <clears throat> um, I got very low. I think in like ninety nine, two thousand, um, just drinking and drinking and 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 uh cocaine and i was i was balancing act i was i was training for like the london marathon and i was burning the candle at both ends you know and a little bit in the middle <laughs> um because i on the one hand i was super fit dude you know that could run like you know a 308 marathon and then you know, I would hammer it afterwards because I'd earned it and all that kind of stuff was going on. But but I was miserable-ish. And and it sort of came to a point I went to a, I went to a meeting with um went to an NA meeting with uh with a friend and like broke down. And I spent a year clean and and sober and felt great. Um and then I decided to sort of go to India and travel around India for three months. And I did that and, and I started drinking again there because I felt better. I was better. And I and I started drinking again. Got myself into like trouble in India. I mean, it got lost. <laughs> don't don't recommend that. Um waking up not knowing where you are, other than the fact that you're in India. <laughs> I mean, it was like inception. <laughs> um so but then, you know, came back from India and that was such an amazing experience as a human. Uh, it, was, it was incredible um, that I had this new outlook on life. So I felt better and I felt like I was okay. And I felt like, I, well, I just needed to sort of grow up a bit. And so that was like 2001. And then I spent the next 10 years thinking I'm okay. And, and then things gradually I gradually lose control over those 10 years. Um, you know, uh, you know, I, I, at one point in my life, I think, I think before it, this would be, you know, at some point in the early two thousands or late nineties, you know, I was smoking weed all the time, you know, and thinking, oh, it's just that, but you know, when you're doing it in morning, noon, and night, I mean, that's a problem, dude. And you're not, 
developing and this is what i've mentioned before about being um emotionally stunted and emotionally retarded uh is because you're not really developing those those skills those life skills at all and you're not dealing with people properly so anyway um the lowest point is like you know i i get i i you know i meet i meet this wonderful lady and 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 i we get we get married no yeah we get married we have a kid and he's when he's like two years old is when an incident happens you know and i just i i i, I started blacking out a lot uh like three times a week you know i'm blacking out and uh you know i did some really like embarrassing stuff and that was when i was like okay i'm gonna lose my family so fortunately i knew what to do because i'd done it before and i rang someone up and asked them to take me ask them for help and i take me to to a meeting or whatever um so and then i just haven't looked back since um and things don't immediately like you know life doesn't immediately get better <clears throat> in fact in some some instances it got worse like my marriage didn't even didn't survive that um but dealt with everything since progressively head on stone cold sober and you experience life just um so much more because you've got nowhere to hide you can't hide from anything so you have to deal with it um the death of both of my parents within six months of each other, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and I wouldn't I just, I wouldn't change it for the world. Like, you know, to be completely present at like a parent's funeral and, and not be getting, you know, everyone else is drinking because they just want to celebrate somebody and blah, blah, blah. but you get to remember and really experience all the lovely things that people have to say about your mom when they come up to you you know you remember it and you experience it and it, and it, it really helps with like the healing process and the grieving process because you know you're facing it like you're staring at everything like full on so so that that kind of sobriety then you know you realize all the problems that you got right <laughs> in, in, your, in your head you you've you've covered them up with with whatever substance for you know 20 years um now now you've got to deal with them because they're going to come to the surface you can't just squash them down so that then led me to you know i i had a taste of therapy through like marriage counseling and then uh I finally was like, all right, I'll go to therapy because I was, because it was, I, I had the stigma about it. I was like, I don't need that. I, I'm a, I'm a, a strong person that can deal with things. You know, I've trained for marathons. I've done, you know, I know, I know what it is. I know about adversity and like, you know, and, and then my eyes were like opened to what therapy actually is and discovering, you know, how to deal with trauma and what actually what what was going on back then you know what we touched on earlier what what it was that was happening and why i feel all these certain things now there's certain things that happen in in recovery that are great like personal inventory and um finding out what your part in all these grievances that you have with all these people and and the, um, things that really come up a lot a lot a lot 
with people are fear and control. And so you, you know, realize the amount of fear that you have about life and the amount of control that you're trying to exert over it. Um, and then, you know, I've, I, I've been in therapy regularly since, and I've, and, uh, did some awesome stuff called like, um, EMDR therapy, which I've, which is mind blowing. Cause <clears throat> I, I've talked to a mate recently after I, after I started it and he'd been doing the same thing, like in LA. And it was the only time we'd actually felt some physical change in, you know, um, in, um, traumatic response to stuff like you get these triggers and you would have a physical reaction to <clears throat> situations and i've heard that it's been used for for uh, veterans um but it makes an absolute difference it was explained to me by my therapist like okay so just talking sometimes isn't enough you have to reprogram your amygdala so you don't have these fight or flight responses which are in there. And the only way to do that is to light it up. And so you light it up with the, uh, you know, pulses or the lights and going to this like trance thing. Um, I don't exactly, exactly know how it works because it's kind of magic. But, um, but I found that hugely beneficial and um, could not recommend it enough to anyone who's listening. Um so yeah, so learning about I don't know if I if I, if I gone way off track here, but no, like, no, keep going. From learning I mean, about who you are and being okay with it, and that you can do stuff, <laughs> um, and sticking with it. It's like my um one of the guys that helped me earlier on in my recovery um, was an old friend, and used we used to be drinking buddies in the UK a bit. I knew him; he was in the music business. And, um, but we used to train at the same kickboxing gym years and years ago. And he's like, here's what you do, blah, 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 blah. And he said, look, think about it like, think about it like training. So you're, you're instructor, you respect your instructor, you think your instructor's a badass, right? If he tells you this is where you put your feet and this is how you throw a punch, you're not going to argue with him, are you? That's the way you're going to do it. So we approached recovery the same way. Do this, 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 and this. You might not agree with it. Doesn't fucking matter. Just do it. And then, you know, you'll see if things get better or not. If they don't get better, come and complain to me, you know, come and yell at me or whatever. But invariably they do. Um, and it's just something I don't miss. I don't, you know, I, but, but learning about how, how kind of stunted I was emotionally was kind of a revelation. And, and, and I've, I've been working to sort of change that and become um, more, more um, be able to interact with people better. Cause I, I, I wasn't good at it. Yeah. Well, there's a few things I want to pull from that. Um, first one, EMDR has you know, come up a lot and there's, there's a lot of people who have success with it. Some people haven't. And it almost seems like the common denominator is it seems to work very well for acute trauma. Like, so there's a thing that bothers you over and over again. And you talk about that thing, but the, the cumulative one, I've been a firefighter for 14 years. I'm feeling this way. Is there something that bothers, you know, those ones, it doesn't seem to work as well for. So oh, was it, was it an acute experience that you were trying to work through with the MDR? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not something I can really go into cause it involves, cause I, cause it, cause it involves another person. Um, but, but there were, um, there were reactions that I would have around, uh, 
stuff to do with looking after my kid and 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 some things that had happened and and I would just be, you know, when you get divorced, when he's not here, I would just be worried, senseless about him. And I, and it, and it, and there were certain things that would happen. And I would be like freaking out. And it was, so I worked on that for it and it assuaged my anxiety about that. I do. I, that's why as well, I discovered that I suffer from anxiety um, and depression. Most of my life, <laughs> I went to see, eventually went to see like a, um, a psychiatrist and you know tell him your life story and he's like oh no you've you've had this forever (laughs) um which was great to like discover like i I, you know it's not and it was never like oh man i got anxiety and depression it was like oh thank fuck like i thought i was crazy you know it's like yes you know what it is it's just a huge relief um and I know it gets thrown around a lot and people are skeptical about it, but it's fucking real, man. It is real. That black cloud is real. And I don't care what the reasons are for it or whether, you know, you know it's not a competition, man. It's like, it is fucking real because you can have everything right and everything great and, you know, a nice house and be in love with your kid, but you can't see the fucking future, man. It's the future is great um so yeah so i dealt with that um but all none of none of that stuff is is available to you unless you um if you have like addiction going on you know none of it's available you'll never get to it it doesn't matter what you try you know you're not going to get to it unless you really find out who you are and what the fuck is going on with you so when you were talking about being addicted to heroin and ironically, you know, a few short years prior to you are portraying heroin addicts in a film. It kind of mirrors when you see doctors and nurses outside the hospital having a cigarette or firefighters flying down the road without a seatbelt on, you know, we know better, but we still do it anyway. Did you catch yourself at any point kind of reflecting on the irony of knowing through portrayal what the addiction does and yet finding yourself in that very same addiction? Yeah, I don't think I was as as I was as as reflectively clever as that. You know, I I don't think I was the. It was probably lost on me because I was more of like, I didn't give a shit. You know what I mean? I had tried. I had. I think I was. I was the only guy who had actually, you know, tried that stuff before we made it. I wasn't like using it regularly, but I tried it. I never. I never. God, I'm really, t- I'm really spilling the beans today. <laughs> but I, I never, um, I never uh, injected anything, and uh, I, that was a step too far for me. Um, but uh, so I think maybe my, you know, my journey with it wasn't as rough as some people's. I mean, yeah. I'm lightweight. <laughs> well, I mean, we're in an era now where you know it's prescribed left, right, and center. I mean, you know, shortly, so I think my timeline now in my head. Yeah, shortly after was when in the US we had the pill mills and you know opiate addiction blew up over here and everyone was on heroin. It just was called a different name. Yeah. Unbelievable. So you talked about Muay Thai as well. I trained in a gym in London. I think it was either Camden or Kentish Town. Where was your Muay Thai gym? And then let's get on your kind of journey of martial arts and and how you found yourself in jiu-jitsu. 
So it wasn't, uh, it wasn't back then it was, kick, that was kickboxing that I did American style, freestyle kickboxing kind of. And it was a guy called Raphael Nieto and he has still, still, yeah, I think he has like two or three gyms in London now, but he had been a student of Mugendo in King's Cross. And when I joined, they were moving and he was starting his own place and he called it, had a various couple of names he went through. I can call it Zendo now, but it was like, it was like, um, taekwondo from the waist down boxing from the waist up so it's very different to muay thai because we kick with a bent knee uh leave the knee and then flick it out it was more like that kind of and then the hands were a bit lower um but my 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 martial arts journey is like i remember when i was like six trying karate because everyone wanted to do karate back then and my mom would take me to karate a couple of times um, but I didn't really like the vibe, so I didn't want to go back. I didn't, I don't know, didn't like the vibe. It was Shotokan karate. Um, I was too too timid for it, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so I don't think I want to go there. Um, when I was, I think, um, 19, 20, um, I looked up a place in King's Cross. I wanted to, I, I went to like a traditional, like Japanese jujitsu place run by a, a veteran in the basement of some like some uh some shady spot in king's cross and uh that was all right kind of like that did that for a while but it didn't stick and um the, actually the mugendo place was upstairs uh, i tried aikido for a bit while i was in the u.s felt like that was really good did that for you know about a year half a year or something so i i flitted around all these things my whole life but nothing had stuck um and then when I found the Mugendo place um, and started training with Raphael, which is in Camden, um, I did that solidly like four times, four or five times a week for three years. Um, I was there like every day, loved it. Um, and that, and then I moved to the States. So when I moved to the States in 2000, uh, to end of 2005, I didn't that that went away and I and I and I was kind of I loved that place and I trained really hard there and I'd got a bunch of belts and been through all these like you know really tough gradings and stuff um never fought never represented them um but uh <clears throat> I didn't really want to like getting together with finding a new gym just seemed like a big a big hill to climb again and I, and I, I wasn't ready to like find another family like that you know what I mean and then you know life took over and so for the next sort of 10 years I didn't um didn't train and it and I, but I was running a lot and I remember I got really back into my running uh I would run with weight a lot um uh when I lived in London I'd like run all over Hampstead Heath with a very heavy pack because I was obsessed with the SAS. <laughs> I used to lifeguard on the on the ponds in the Heath for years. You probably see me struggling past with a backpack full of old scripts. Like I would, weigh about, <laughs> I would run with about forty pound, and you know, feel like Andy McNabb um, in all all weather. Um, but anyway, got really into my running, and I run like you know a bunch of marathons, and uh, um, so I didn't train, and then I got in a. 
And it wasn't when I came back into New York and then I started doing outside ultra marathon running, you know? And my goal was to like run a 50 mile, run a few 50 milers. And then was like, Oh my God, these are so hard. There's no way I'm going to do a hundred miler. And then I was like, well, a few, a little bit later, you feel okay. End up running a hundred miler. And then, um, when I got divorced again, uh, I just, I just got fed. I was fed up with all that training on my own and I was fed up with being on my own. And, and even though I felt like I'd really pushed myself to, you know, to do something that not a lot of people do, you know, around hundred miles in a day, fucking did it. But like, I'm sick and tired of all this training on my own. And I, I used to kickbox man. So that was fun. And I eventually, um, I walked into a Muay Thai gym here called Evolution Muay Thai. And really hit it off with the owner and head coach there, Brandon Levi. And then I was off to the races. That was like, that became home. And and especially being sober, it's like going to the pub. You know, you, you're just surrounded by people that you like. You're, you're telling jokes, having fun. But instead of drinking, you're learning to, you know, knock seven bells out of each other or whatever. Or knock seven bells out of pads. So... It was brilliant. It was a perfect thing for for, for me. Um, and you know, I, I that's where I discovered what a team sport um fighting is. That it's you know, and yes, it's an individual sport, but the people do not realize that don't do it. The team and the amount of bonding that that goes on there. And evolution was great, especially then. They're in a different um they're in a different spot now, but they would have a very bad, a very big mat space. And so they could divide it in half. So you'd have the 5.30 Muay Thai class here and the 5.30 Nogi Jiu-Jitsu class going on over there. And then the 6.30 Muay Thai class and the 6.30 Gi class going on. And then you could just hang around. So there's people hanging around like the whole time, you know, all day. There's people, you could just go there and hang out. And I and I fell back in love with, with, uh, with combat sports. And then I was persuaded to try the Jiu-Jitsu <clears throat> and I and I, much to Brandon's chagrin, I started being in the, on the jiu-jitsu side of the rope more than the Muay Thai side of the rope. <laughs> um, but I did go back and did train and, and have um do a smoker fight, you know, an exhibition fight. And then I did uh I managed to get um on the card of Friday night fights and had a had a fight representing evolution here in New York, which is just like the fantasy it's just like you know you can you feel like you're a professional athlete it's unbelievable <laughs> so what about the uh jiu-jitsu side so you 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 fight you know you do the smoker you fight in the muay thai what did you end up loving about the grappling side in the end um a couple of things i mean i I'd, I'd, I'd been in denial about jiu-jitsu for so many years right i'd been like oh yeah these guys think they're it and i've heard this and blah 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 jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu. so it's kind of like um i had a thing about it and then and then um what i like about it is it's exhausting i mean not that my isn't but you get your hands on each other every class and then you're learning techniques and then you are putting those techniques into practice, your real practice, sparring rounds, every class. So the Muay Thai, you might, you know, you might have to, you can only go to the sparring, like they only have it like Tuesday night or Thursday night, Saturday afternoons. 
you go to go especially to the sparring class, but in you're getting practical application of, of jiu-jitsu every class you go to, and you really um you know scratch that itch of competition a little bit. You know, I know it's probably you know not supposed to be, it's all training and blah blah blah, but you you do, you get to like, you know try and grapple with someone every time. And I really, I really like that. And I, and, and I kind of knew, um, I kind of knew from experience that, you know, fights aren't always like this. And, in a, and, and there are so many um, self-defense applications for jujitsu, being able to control another person without hurting them. That that's another very cool thing. Um <clears throat> I got in a, I got in a, a wild, uh, when I lived in LA before I moved back to New York. Um, so this is a few years before, um, I caught a bloke trying to steal out of a, the, um, trying to go through our mail on a mailbox. He was on a bicycle and outside of, and I, I just had an argument with my wife. <laughs> I was feeding my son breakfast and the see, I see out the window, uh, this dude like going through my mailbox. So I go, I go, watch, I go, watch Buster. And I, and I storm out of the house and I don't put my shoes on or nothing. I just, and he goes down the hill on a bike and I jump in the car and I catch him at my neighbor's mailbox doing the same thing. And I'm like, jump out of the car. I'm like, oh, and he takes off on his bike and then I chase him and I run him off the road <laughs> and he takes off and we end up having a brawl. It's like eight o'clock in the morning. So there's no one around on a Sunday or whatever. And we had this brawl in the street and this dude's massive. And I've got no shoe. I've got my shorts and no shoes or socks on. And I couldn't control him. <laughs> and he's trying to get away, but I can't control him. And, you know, so I chase that and I'm trying to call the police and I'm, I'm we're going. To, and this goes on for 15 minutes. I call the police three times. And eventually with we're like two streets away from where I've left my car and and a, and a detective shows up and pulls a gun on us and tells us to freeze and puts us both in handcuffs up against the wall. And and then eventually the cops all show up and I'd rip this guy's bag off because he when I jump out of the car and tackle him on someone's lawn. Right. He's got a bag on his um, got this little purse. And I was like, there might be a weapon. So I grabbed it and I ripped it off him and I left it there. And it turned out it had it had all the neighborhood mail in it. And it was like he was working on like check fraud or whatever. So I had to tell this story to the police that show up and they go and they find my car and they find the bag, thankfully. Um, and the fire department show up and I, I, I'd taken all the skin off my, I'd taken like a few toenails off and all the skin off my, off my knees and they hose me down. Um, so jujitsu appealed to me being able to like control somebody and not letting them <laughs> run off down the street with your mail. One of the, one of the policemen is like, um, Hey man, I'm really looking forward to that new show that's coming out. <laughs> it's just <laughs> elementary. Uh, the Sherlock Holmes show that I, that I did, um, was about to come out. So, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty funny. And the, and the other policeman, he says, he says, yeah, it was cool what you did, but next time he says, if I'm going to run out to somebody, I'm going to make sure I've got my shoes and my gun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, what's funny though, is what you found in that grappling account, even though you had striking experience is what we see on tape a lot now with some of these law enforcement videos. And, it, and it's sad and it's not to belittle anyone, but it just shows the importance of training and why, 
grappling should be an integral part of especially law enforcement because it is really hard just to hold down a human being not i mean i can't imagine i mean i've had so much admiration for people that are good at cuffing because it's hard as you know just holding a person down but then they get handcuffs on while you're holding them down that is that is so so challenging so that's why it blows my you know blows my mind when you hear you know some departments have no fitness standards they don't give them grappling training they shoot you know six shots once a year and then yeah. they check the box and they say they're good because god forbid that someone that then gets up and goes and shoots up a school you know that's unacceptable yeah and we have you know especially in new york city here there's a lot of very you know uh, people with you know um mental illness going around and and it's not their fault dude and they can be scary um and actually a, a friend of mine that i trained with uh, uh from evolution brian kemsley he actually was on the news because he actually restrained a dude that that had grabbed someone's kid i mean he was you know he was very ill this dude but brian was able to had has had some rudimentary jujitsu and he was able to hold this guy in um back control with a seatbelt for half an hour before anybody came but he didn't have to he didn't have to knock his you know he didn't have to like put his lights out and he didn't have to hurt the guy you know what i mean um <clears throat> and i think that's important yeah i just saw a video the other day i think it was in new york i'm not sure but um someone i think the guy was stealing from one of the construction workers cars if i've got that right anyway they ended up like taping him to the scaffolding until the cops came he's got one leg up in the air another arm is over here i'm like well that works yeah <laughs> they used the tools they had exactly yeah. <laughs> we're staying with the first responder professions i want to get to you know your most recent projects so make sure we talk about that but before we do the fire service. So Bobby got in, you know, he's a very powerful story of losing a friend in 9-11 and that's what took him into the first responder profession. Here you are now, you know, story career when it comes to the world of, of acting. What made you choose to uh, start volunteering as a firefighter in your community? So um, I started visiting Fire Island uh, with the family when we moved to New York and uh, it was introduced to me by my ex-wife and, and she's like, uh, it, we would go there for the summer and rent someone else's house or rent a room that someone else had, you know, off somebody else. And, and it was the most peaceful place I'd ever been in my life. One of the most peaceful places. And every time I go there, I just get this, this relaxation just comes over me and I'm you're right by the ocean and it's green and there's no cars everywhere. Everyone goes everywhere on bicycles. There's a few cars for, for, for necessity. Certain people need them, but um, the streets are very small little pavements, you know? So it's this great community I fell in love with. I'm going there for like, you know, 10 years on holiday. And eventually I, I was able to, to buy a little place there. So I've been spending more and more time there and it's very, very special to me and to my family. Um, so the more I got into this community, like the more people I get to know. So I got to know, got to know a couple of people and the neighbors were on the fire department. And then I keep, every time you go to the ferry, I walk past the, the fire department and, and I see, oh, they, there's these signs there say volunteer. And and the other big thing is it's, it's, it, there's an air horn system, right? So when there's, when the call, call goes out for the, uh, for the department, an air horn goes across the uh, across the community, and the air horn is right at the end of my street. 
so I'd be sitting at home, you know, at night and I'd be thinking, well, I'm not doing anything. I could, I could, I could help. It's amazing if I could be a phone. I'm not doing anything. I don't go to the bar. I don't drink, you know, I don't hang out in bars. So I'm ready to go. Um, I'm not, I'm not that old. Um, so after a couple of years of walking past that sign saying volunteer, I just thought, and, and, and to be honest, like I had always wanted to be a fireman. Like I've always had that fantasy in my head and, then I just managed to put two and two together. We're like, we can do it. Like, you don't have to change your life. You don't have to give up your job. Um, and so I looked into it about what the commitment was, what the commitment was. And they're like, no, it's just when you're here, you're here. If you're available, you're available. There's no, you're not required to be here any amount of time specifically. So I was like, well, that might fit with my job. So I just walked in one day and and uh, and and asked uh and had got a, got a bit of paperwork and then knowing a few people in the community, they, uh, they vote you in, they have a, uh, and, uh, I was sponsored in by, um, <clears throat> uh, Captain Paul, uh, Paul Brinkat, who's a captain there, but he was, uh, he's a career FDNY guy. And we have a few, uh, few of those guys. Um, and, I was seconded by another really nice guy, Steve, who I'd met, who's a lieutenant there. And uh, next thing I know, I got voted in. And then they're like, well, when can you go and do the course? And so I just, I grew up near, I grew up almost next to a fire station. Out of my sister's back window in, in Kingston, we had, um, you could see the old practice towers, the really British ones, you know, that's just like a, like, like a brick column going up about four floors. I mean, always see them training on that and, and, you know, like like any kids, like into being a fireman. But it, with me, it was always like ah, oh. and and I've always been quite. Um, never really talk about this, but I've always been quite. I went through a specific period of being kind of ashamed about being an actor. And and if anyone's ever like, oh, what do you do? It's like I hate telling people that that's what I do for a living because I think I think it's got a place in the world, but I don't. I think it's overrated <laughs> and. Um, everyone likes stories. Everyone wants to watch movies and television, and, and that's fine. And it's it's good. Like I got over my kind of uh, hatred of it, I suppose. Um, but I never really felt like um, that it was cool. I know I was good at it, but I never. It's never really been like you know, well, fucking good on you, man. You're a fucking actor. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I was like, well, look, here's a chance to like actually like do something really awesome because um and I know it's kind of I know that kind of sounds selfish. And there's that there's that dichotomy of 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 uh you know, be, I'm not I can't say it's really like I had to serve the community. It's a two-way deal. I get to I get to um do something that I'm absolutely have, have secretly been obsessed with my whole life um, and see if I can do it and see if I can um, meet the standard. Um, and the bonus is we get to help, you know? Um, I, I don't know. Like I, I, I think if I'm really honest, it's like, it's a two way thing for me, you know? Um, but that's the way the world works, right? I mean, you know, it's like a, so. So I, I walked in, and honestly, it's like 
uh, a couple of months later, I'm going to the Suffolk County Fire Academy, which I know Bobby talked about. Um, and I just felt like a million dollars, man, going in that classroom and 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 listening to those lectures and doing it. And 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 then I discovered that because I kind of blew school off, I, I couldn't really deal with school when I was there. I did okay, but I coasted, man, and and, and I and I, I hated it. Um, but I couldn't have been in that classroom too much, man. It's like, and I discovered that if um if you're doing a subject that you care about and that's you find interesting, like, dude, I'll study fucking fire dynamics till you know my head falls off. You're like, what's today? Oh, tactical ventilation. Fuck yeah! <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, I couldn't get enough of it. I've got the textbook right here, actually, and and um, I did really well on the classes, and and I and I. And when it was practical days, <clears throat> I mean, that's the super, I, we, we, you don't get that many practical days in, in volunteer in the academy because the whole course has to be structured around people who have jobs. So you can only go like Wednesday evenings or Tuesday evenings or we, so I was in the Sunday morning classes and, um, but I couldn't get enough of it. And obviously you can only learn what you need to function on a on a five month course, you learn most of the stuff after that, you know, on the on the job, right? And going to drills and stuff like that. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I just, I just, you know, you could say I wish I'd done it before or whatever, but maybe. But I think I've got a good twenty years in me. I keep myself in pretty good shape, so I think I've got. A, a long time of being able to uh, looking forward to being able to to serve a community that I genuinely love that that place so it's just it was just perfect you know, perfect storm somewhere that I really care about getting to to you know so far just you know pretend to be this whatever but firefighter <laughs> um but hopefully one day I'll I'll be able to call my you know feel properly like I like I know what I'm doing more you know A couple of things. Firstly, I totally relate. I was a straight C student in school and a straight A student in fire school and paramedic school because I got it and it made sense. So I can totally relate there. Also, with the actor thing, I was kind of on the other side. I was a full-time career firefighter, but I did stunts on the side as kind of my side hustle for the last 20 plus years. And I remember I was doing this pirate dinner show in Orlando. And I remember coming off shift and we'd probably done, you know, something of consequence, you know, something significant that shift. And then a few hours later, I go into the the green room and someone's queening out, out about their costume. And I just remember sitting there going, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? And there are some phenomenal people that act, that do stunts, you know, that are selfless and incredible human beings. Bobby obviously is one of them. Um, but it did kind of make me realize that when I was playing stuntman, I was the center of attention and this this audience in the round was watching me, you know, swinging from ropes and doing sword fights and stuff. But when I was in uniform, it was about the other people. It was about who we serve. So that dichotomy is true. And then, and then to say, if serving others meant I had to sit in a factory for 12 hours, then yes, I would say this is purely selfless. But when serving others means that you can also extricate and go into burning buildings and, you know, and perform CPR and that stuff, 100%. It is service, but it's, it is so gratifying as well. So it definitely is a double-edged sword in a positive yeah. way. 
and you know like you i think um i don't really have a uh, uh, i have no problem with um dangerous situations you know what i mean and 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 i kind of you know not everyone's like that i suppose um so so why not let's go you know uh, why not why not and uh you know i i think that's you know if if you don't have a problem with it step up you know what i mean <laughs> um i uh i you know there's that thing as well like it, it if you're going to do a job whether you know acting or whatever it's you know i can really identify with taking it very seriously and and getting into it and for for a long time i didn't i because i you know been, been doing acting for 40 years and i you can't maintain that kind of like i don't know that um they can't maintain like the method or whatever for that long I, for, for me I, so, so i used to be so I was really into it like uh, passionate about it when i was younger and then i got like yeah so no no then it's fun and then it's like so what and then i guess uh, actually um you know having been in recovery i got way more serious about it and i was like i don't work as much a lot because i've been able to sort of save right so i don't have to work so so when i do work i take it pretty seriously and i'm able to but it's like you don't you don't get upset about stuff <laughs> you just take it seriously like there's a difference you know and 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 i think it's okay to take something ridiculous like pretending to be another person very seriously if you're going to do it it's okay but as long as you remember that that's what it is and you're telling a story and it has its place in society and in the world, but that's all it is. But when I, I went on, I was leaving, um, I was leaving Fire Island to go to do, you're okay. You can walk north. <laughs> yeah. Um, as my son, he's creeping. <laughs> yeah, he's creeping. Um, I was leaving Fire Island to go and do this play in the UK last summer. And, and I'd been an active duty firefighter for a short while and, I'm just wishing for the pager to go off, which is terrible because I'm not wishing harm on anybody or disrupt, but you know what I mean? And I do hundred percent. Everybody who's been there knows. And uh it goes off. I've just been watching, I've, I've been watching like this this NBC um documentary about the LA fire department that had just come out. And it was like action, 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 action. Like they they're going, like they're on calls, calls, calls. And I'm like, wow, those guys are so busy. That's amazing. I think it's so much experience. Like, oh my God, like I've got to go and do this play. I'm going to be away for my, and then the season's going to be over. And then it might be another year until I get to do that shit. And then the pager and the siren go off and the pager talks to you, you know, the volunteer pager, it's like a one-way radio. It's a, it says working structure fire. And I'm like, I've just finished what I was I was like, what? And I go outside my house. I could smell it because it's two blocks away and I could smell smoke in the air. <clears throat> my heart starts racing. And we go and we get to this, we get to the all the, the brush between two houses um, right next to the beach had caught fire, was going. And and it was just getting down the side and under. So the house, the main house is on stilts and it was just getting there and it had gone down the side and it was on its deck and it was getting, and it was melting the siding on the deck and was just getting to the propane tank. And we got to it before his house burned down and nobody got hurt. And it spread to the next yard, but we got that as well from a different line. 
and um you know we stayed to make sure and and, and just just seeing like i i kind of like i was like because uh i think the first we went the first crew there was there was only there was three of us there was only two of us i think with packs on and then we had the lieutenant and the captain and then another truck came with some other guys and i was just like i just went to the hydrant i flushed the hydrant and fucking you know to help with the hook up there and then then went on the then went on the hose line and we stayed for about 2 hours making the hotspots and they had the infrared cameras and checking for the underground burning and all that stuff. And the guy was so happy that his house was okay. Cause there was, there was a breeze off the, off there was like a 10 mile an hour breeze, which was absolutely deadly. And in fire Island, it's dry and you get that ocean breeze and you can lose it like half a block. So it was just like the perfect thing, but watching how amazingly um, professional the guys were and we had we had an engine come from from bobby's department as as um, mutual aid and they weren't needed and so everyone was proud because we're like you know the, like the little country bumpkin and, but we handled it you know and um i just i didn't sleep for hours I, it was just the greatest day of my life dude i mean no no offense to my son my son there <laughs> <laughs> Again, people listening can relate. We love our kids. Because nobody got hurt. The house, the house didn't go. You know what I mean? We got to it like the, the, the stilts were just charring. And, uh, um, so it was, it was, it was the perfect thing. Why was I telling that? It's cause it's cause funny. Yeah. Cause I was about to go and then do this play, (laughs) you know, and, and, uh, but I got, I got to, I got to go on a, on a, on a job, um, I mean, I'd been called out before where we do, we, we get called out for helicopter landings um, when, cause that's the only way for someone who's gets seriously injured to get off the Island. Um, so we get called out for those, um, but the, I'd only been to like two landings and then uh, that was my first uh, fire. And I just, I'll tell you what, that that's why I like doing, um, I mean, it was just, it was just an incredible feeling to have helped out like that. And I was like, I would, I would, I would happily just do that for the rest of my life. And, and, I, and, 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 and kind of, you know, part of me wishes that, you know, no, not, I mean, not really, because I'm, I'm a realist and, you know, I realize that that's, that's silly. But honestly, if, if I could earn a living doing it, I would do it probably 24 seven. Yeah, I mean, it is amazing. This is why, you know, there's people that volunteer to do it, the people that are, you know, paid on call. There's there's career people that arguably in a lot of countries work in very, very poor conditions, unbeknownst to the average citizen. But, you know, they are worked into the ground. But this is a calling, you know, and I think it does balance that. It was so nice I had it the other way. You know, I got to do all the serious stuff and then I got to run around as a pirate or most recently get beaten up by Jason Bourne in the stunt show, you know, so, uh, you know, you get to play the other end, but it is, it's, it's a beautiful feeling. I think it's what's needed. And this is what I talked about with Bobby in the second conversation was volunteerism, you know, mm-hmm. and, and there's time, there's definitely places around the country where maybe we shouldn't have volunteer firefighters because it's a very affluent community and they probably should have a full-time career department. But, uh, you know, I think volunteerism, whether it's in the firefighter uniform or mentorship in the community, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> without getting political because it's not, but I haven't seen a lot of 
community building from a lot of the people at the very top of the political chain recently. It's a lot of very divisive you know, rhetoric from both sides. So I think volunteerism, community, some of these, you know, compassionate elements of of humanity, we need to refine that. And I think it's awesome that you found it now at this age. Yeah. And, you know, an- another thing about the, those things is like, especially in firehouses, they get very, uh, in our in our firehouse, so you've got, you. it's a very broad spectrum and you you have all political views there. And so all the, the people that are coming together to volunteer or coming together, th- you get a look at the other point of view, if you will, uh, a lot more because uh, then you're not staying in your own little groove of, of, you know, people that all have the kind of same opinions and you're, you're kind of friend pool or whatever. You're, you're mixing with, you know, very different kinds of people and you realize that you've got way more in common. And, and I love that shit. You know what I mean? I love those, those bridges in life between people, between people of opposing political views. And I love that common ground. And I think there's a lot more to be had. So the, the volunteer fire service is pretty amazing for that. So we got, cause we got, we got, we got, a, we got some newer guys, younger guys. It's funny. I put myself in that group of the newer, younger guys and I'm fucking 51, but it's like, you know, there's a, there's a sort of a whole new influx coming in. Um, and then you've got, you know, your traditional, you know, blue collar, older dudes. Um, yeah. Brilliant. Well, I want to hit one more topic and then go to some closing questions. So I've been mindful of your time and let you get back to your son. But just before we go to those, you know, you had a you know, story career, as you said, it was um, elementary as well. Uh, oh, my goodness. And you had it. Lucy Lou. Lucy Lou. Thank you. I and mean, she was literally my teenage crush as well. So I don't know why. Probably because of that. Maybe my brain exploded just then. Um, so, you know, multiple seasons with that, <laughs> um, talk to me about most recently, what are some of the projects that you've already done or you're about to work on that you're excited about? Well, I mean, I was mentioning, uh, last summer I had to go to England to do this play and I went to England and did a play over the summer, um, at a small theater in London called the Almeida theater. And it was a big success. And so we got an offer to transfer to the West end, which is, um, you know, like, London's Broadway and uh so I'm going back there to do that in in January um and the dates got moved forward to the winter so I'm very happy because I'll be back in time for fire season um on the island <laughs> so I'm really happy about that but so yeah and 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 the theater for me is just I my grandfather liked the theater more than films uh, uh and I I'm the same I uh so it's the only it's the only time you can actually like I mean acting can be fun, right? Making a movie can be fun, you can go to some cool places, but it's it's rare that you're doing a scene with someone in a movie and then you go home, and you're like, fuck yeah, man, that was fucking like wow, did some acting. That's kind of not the vibe, right? In the theatre, you do the whole story in front of an audience, and our play is a lot of fun. It's called A Mirror, um, this play. It's by Samantha Holcroft. It was a new play, and it it takes place under the auspice of you're going to a wedding. So 
the whole audience are wedding guests and you've got wedding chairs there and an order of service and and then we start and this police this undercover police officer gets up and leaves as soon as we've started the service and then it turns out we are we just wanted to get rid of that person but we're actually here to do an uh, an illegal unlicensed play for the audience and that's why everybody's here and the play that takes so we're in this world of it's not england and it's it's somewhere but it's a bit more authoritarian and it is um we then go and tell this tell this story for the audience and there's a lot of audience participation in it a couple of times we think we're going to be found out so we have to go back to the wedding scenario but it's actually very funny and it, and it addresses um topics of censorship and truth and um propaganda um so I love doing this play so when you're doing the theater you do it in front of things and you make an audience laugh and you can freak them out and you can get them scared and do all that stuff and then when they appreciate it and they love it and the whole place is like buzzing and it's terrifying you know every night it's like nerve-wracking are you going to get this right are you going to get that wrong you know and then you can you know shove a performance down an audience throat and it's a buzz so it's like um you don't get that anywhere else in in I don't I don't think so I'm much more into doing that so I'm really happy to be able to go back and do that and you know like I'm all about in, enjoying it again and enjoying the work again and 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 uh it's the best way to do it is theater um you know and I, and I, I don't know if I, uh, if you people enjoy going to the theater or not I think there's nothing worse than bad theater that's just fucking terrible but leave at the interval if you don't like it. Just leave. <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but um, but when theatre's good, and when it's done well, and it's and it's a good play, and 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 it should be an electric night, you know, and and you should laugh your ass off. You should experience horror and and have all of those emotions can be involved in in it. And I just love that. Um, and I love, you know, making an audience happy um, in that imme- the immediacy of it. You know what I mean? I do. Because I, I did, when I did stunts, it was always live shows. But I did, I was on the, when I say I was on, I was a glorified extra player and a firefighter in the World Trade Center movie. So I got to see Oliver Stone, massive production. And wow. then uh, did a couple of, um, another extra one on a television show crossing jordan and then i was in a history channel pirate tv show um where uh i had again an awful awful acting performance wearing a brian may wig i don't know if they gave perms in the pirate days but this this wig certainly had it this guy did it was the sea air (laughs) (laughs) I, i feel a shanty coming on um but uh but it was interesting because again like you said i got to see all right do a take cut and then in the in the the oliver stone one i mean just hours and hours and hours of waiting around then you shoot a scene and then reset and then the actors finally come on and they do a line and they go back to their trailer and you're like oh my god versus for example that pirate show an hour and a half of non-stop acting singing stunts swings sword fights yeah. If you had the right combination, because the cast changed like every day, so the right people on stage and then the right audience off, you know, actually in the audience, it was amazing. And you would absolutely get that high because if you nailed the sword fights and everyone oohed and ahed and the, the, the high falls and the gun battles, 
you know, it was a complete connection inside that inside that building. And I didn't ever, you know, even though I got a short exposure to it when it came to being on set, you just do, you do it and then you, you reset again. So I can, I know it's a stunt version of what you're talking about, but I can relate. Yeah. And then, you know, if you're making a movie or whatever, and then it's like years later, it's people's tend to go, oh, it's a great movie or whatever. And then that can go on and on for forever and ever and ever. And it's great because, you know, you'll get in a cab and a cab driver or like a movie that you, you know did or whatever that that's that's cool it's great but if you're talking about like personally having fun doing your job you can't beat the theater can't beat it um and i guess i'm just looking for a thrill what what with that and and you know volunteering so i mean you know there's a there's a pattern emerging here absolutely <laughs> well one more thing cuz we talked about your grandfather's role in James Bond. What have you heard? Who do you think is going to be the next James Bond? And have you considered trying to be part of that production so you can do this full circle from two generations ago? Well, I, that that ship is the Bond ship has sailed for this fifty-one-year-old. But uh, but um, I uh, I think uh, I actually I actually like you know. So I was doing this play. And Michael Ward was in it. You know who Michael Ward is? Michael Ward was in Top Boy. You might know him from Top Boy. I don't know if you saw that, but a lot of people... don't think I did, actually. I'll write his name down there. So Michael is um, a brilliant young black actor from uh, from London. And um, he's a great actor. Did you see Empire of Light? He was in that. That's uh, Sam Mendes' movie with Olivia Colman. He's a terrific actor. And I, I was joking with him. I was like Michael Ward for Bond. But I kind of think he'd be really good. And I think they could they could use a black James Bond as well. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's, it's funny. When, when they start trying to get female James Bonds in, in there, it's like, okay, it's James Bond. Like, we've got to draw a line somewhere. But I've been knowing British, I mean, we're all colours and creeds. So he could be any ethnicity He's whatsoever. He's a terrific actor and, you know, um, a really good guy too. So... He'd be my, my vote would go for Michael. Brilliant. I'm looking at him now. I think Top Boy rings, rings, you know, rings a bell, but I'm not sure. But what about the M role? He doesn't have to be young. So no, I've got my eye on that. I've got my eye on that because, like, there's no age limit with that one. Yeah. So I've got, I've got all the time in the world. Hey. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, then, quick closing questions. The very first one is there a book that you love to recommend, or books, plural? It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Oh my gosh. I don't have a go-to recommender. I I read a lot of thrillers. <laughs> I can recommend the Harry Bosch series for people who haven't read those. Um, the Bosch series by Michael Connolly are really good. I've read 19 of them in the last two years. Wow. Um if you really like how detective work actually works and the sort of the legwork and the monotony of it, monotony is the wrong word because the books are great. <laughs> but the first one, they start and they start, he started writing in the eighties. So you get, it goes from pre-internet all the way through and, and Los Angeles is a real character in those books. Um, I, so I love those books. Um, He's a Vietnam veteran who was a tunnel rat. And then he ends up on the homicide bureau um, in the robbery homicide division. 
and it's they're just great. I did read recently. Um, I'm going to give a plug here. Uh, Sean Rogers, uh, Sean Buck Rogers is he's a green but former Green Beret, um, and he uh, he's got a YouTube channel. He's getting really popular, but he just wrote his second book about his first book was his sort of his story from a traumatic childhood to becoming um, a Green Beret to then uh, becoming a police officer. Um, and then he wrote a book, his book's just come out called Better Broken. And, and he asked me to, to take a look at it before it came out. And I did, and it was amazing. And it's about how to use the so-called uh, problems in your life and, and to have, if people with traumatic backgrounds, how that's actually can be an advantage to you in life. If, and he, but he actually gives practical advice on how to do that. Um, it's not just a theory and conjecture. It's a, it's a great book. Beautiful. Yeah. I've talked about that a lot recently because and I, I follow him. I recognize that name. So I already follow him on Instagram. That's someone I need to reach out, especially if he's a police officer as well. But that's what's missing with the mental health conversation. He's another jujitsu guy as well. Oh, is he even better? But yeah, that post traumatic growth side, you know, that, that gives you hope then. It's not like, oh, well, you know, I've, I've got X, Y, and Z, and I guess I'd be able to deal with it if I take these pills or whatever. Like, no, when you go through and come out the other end, that becomes resilience. That becomes a superpower. And now you're also a beacon of light for other people that are going through it and they see that you've navigated. It doesn't mean that every day is flawless. Like you're still going to have your struggles, but it's, it always reminds me of that. I forget the term they use, but the Japanese, when they, they fix the broken pottery with the gold glue, yeah. that's, that's what it is. And I think we need to talk about that a lot more. My, my friend, Ben Timberlake, who'd written a, another terrific book I'll recommend called high risk. Um, and that's, he was, a um, he was in a two, one SAS um reserve sas regiment and then um had a lot of problems with drugs and stuff and came out the other side and uh, has this amazing story um his book is terrific but it and, and it, it it looks at a lot of uh, neuroscience and brain chemistry and the reason the book is so great is because it's telling you like what is going on with your brain while all these things are happening <clears throat> but he's in that book he so it says a lot of people talk about post -tro um post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress disorder, but they don't really talk about post-traumatic growth, um, which is what you're saying. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's a huge thing, you know, and, and, a, and a very, very powerful tool. If you can, if you can get work through all that stuff and get to the other side. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. Those are two books everyone can check out. Brilliant. Well, thank you for that. Same kind of question. What about films and or documentaries that you love? I'm a documentary machine. So, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> um, gosh, um, films. Oh, man. I don't know. Like, that's just too much because I just, I just, I watch a lot. You know, I, 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 um, I send my kid to school, I go training. I, you know, if I'm not working, I, you know, I go training, I come home, I make dinner, I watch stuff, <laughs> you know, so I get through a whole, I've got a bunch of things. I just rewatched True Detective last week, the, the original one. And it, it, I think it's, you know, with Woody Harrelson and, and Matthew McConaughey. If you haven't seen that, you need to check that out because it's, it's one of my 
one of the best detective dramas ever made. Um, so there's that. Um, Sicario is one of my favorite films because I'm such a boy. <laughs> <laughs> I just rewatched that the other day because Josh Josh was on the show um, twice now, but the first time we we became friends, he ended up writing the forward to my book, which was mind blowing. But uh, but yeah, I mean that again, super humble. It's unknown to most people that he volunteers as a wildland firefighter for, I think it's either two or three seasons. But again, like yourself, he's not front and center with all the paparazzi and stuff. He just, yeah. you know, he's he's an artist. And if you look at his writing, his writing is the fact that I even got it between the covers of, of my book is mind blowing. And I always joke as well. He he read it on the audio book and I'm like, yeah. So Josh Brolin, one of the best voices in Hollywood, narrates the forward for my book. And then my fucking squeaky ass <laughs> reads the West. <laughs> That's the brotherhood there, brotherhood in action. Yeah, exactly though, exactly. I mean, you know, I was I was no one in on his radar, you know, and, and he put his name to that. But uh, but yeah, but I mean, back to Sicario though. That, nah, I like that film even more now. You've told me that. <laughs> so, what about documentaries? You so say you you watch a lot of them. Any ones that really resonated with you? See, I always freeze when I get asked questions like this. I'm sorry. I'll think of like 20 and, and as soon as we're not on the recording anymore. Um, oh my gosh. I mean, I went through it. So I, I actually um I actually have written a wrote a wrote a screenplay. Um I've actually adapted that book, High Risk, I was talking about. I've adapted it for the screen. And um when I was doing that, I I watched a lot of uh combat documentaries. And I sort of went into a rabbit hole with those for years and years and years, actually. Um, so I know a lot of good ones there. Uh, um, if that's your jam, but I think Brotherhood Life in the FDNY is one of my favorites documentaries for obvious reasons. I don't know. You can, I know you can watch, I know you can see it on YouTube. Um, but it's um, there are a lot of really good FDNY documentaries that I just love, um, and that one deals with a lot of old school guys. Um, is that, I get confused with them because I think is there's a there's a some of the guys from these documentaries cross pollinate into other ones. There's a one about Rescue Two, I think, that's really good, and some of the guys from that are in Brotherhood. But it's it's really about the workings of a fire of a New York firehouse and what it means to the guys to work there and be there for each other, um, and the kind of work that they do, and the lifestyle, and and in it, you know, this the filmmaker really lives with them, and you get a really good look at those guys who are gonna come and help you when you're having the worst day of your life yeah i've actually got that on dvd funny enough and it's fantastic yeah. yeah well speaking of great people is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world ben timberlake brilliant if you can help me make that happen we will do it i would love to have him on i can Fantastic. He's a really good dude. Um, but yeah. He's beautiful. He's a he he'd be a genuinely interesting guest <laughs> as opposed to this guy. 
<laughs> no, this is the thing. This is the humility again. It's been an amazing conversation. Well, one more, one more area before it. Make sure everyone knows where to find you online. What do you do to decompress? Jiu-jitsu. And uh, jiu-jitsu. I play video games quite a lot. I'm a bit of a nerd. I, especially during the pandemic, I went deep into Warzone with with my with a group of friends because we just put our headsets on and then we're hanging out with each other. And, and you know, even though we're shutting our own houses, um, I play video games. I read books. Uh, I do jujitsu and I watch TV. Brilliant. Well, very last thing then, if people want to, you know, follow you, reach out to you, whatever it is, where are the best places to find you online? You can find me on Instagram only. Um, that's the only jam i am i i uh i deleted my twitter years ago after it was making me angry 15 times a day so i'm like no more <laughs> so you can you can search me uh um there's one with a blue tick and that's me um but yeah but um don't message me because i won't see it <laughs> <laughs> Well, Johnny, I want to say thank you so much. It's been an amazing conversation. Like I said, I, I truly am you know, humbled that you chose to come on, having uh, done simply one before six years ago. So, um, But it's so important, as I me mentioned over and over again, it's these human stories behind these kind of, and I, I use facade in a positive way, but, but the the part that we see, the front-facing part of people, whether it's a soldier or a police officer or an actor or a singer, but to hear the kind of human side and, and the highs and the lows that we all experience, I think is is so important. And the fact that you volunteered in the profession that a lot of us listening adore adds even more value. So I want to thank you so, so much for being so generous with your time today. Thank you very much for including me in your conversation, man. And and like I'm I'm only starting out on my journey as a as hope to one day be uh, considered more of a first responder. And that is truly uh, I know is going to be the highlight of my life. So thanks for uh, having me.